1: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, hello, hello there, thinkers. It is me, your girl, your host, Elena Grace, and... I'm back. We took a, a little bit of an unplanned bye week last week. Basically, I'll just go ahead and let you guys know. I told you that I and and my partner Adam that we were moving to Tampa. It was absolutely insane. Not only was moving ourselves like very difficult. And very like physically and emotionally strenuous, but I also almost died on the way down. Um, trigger warning, I guess. My car had been serviced at the beginning of October, and apparently they didn't um, screw one of my wheels back on all the way. So I drove all the way down from Kentucky with it like that, which is concerning, but it didn't really I don't know I think it had just been like slowly loosening over time so it didn't really cause any problems on the drive down from Kentucky earlier in the month um but and apparently I never went fast enough for it to cause any problems on my 10 minute drive to work every day you know so On the drive from Destin, where we were moving from the Destin area um, down to Tampa, every time, first it was like every time I went over 50 miles an hour, it got worse. And then eventually it was just constantly, it was doing something I couldn't figure out what it was because I would get out and look at my tire. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with my tires. Like, what the heck is this? Yeah, because I wasn't looking at the lug nuts because I never thought to look at them because that seems like such... an obvious thing that those are obviously going to be on there if my tire is attached right wrong they were hanging on by it was hanging on by one lug nut anyway anyway so that caused um just a lot of problems and then it's just been like settling in after that right because that was very dramatic so (laughs) this week We have a really special episode to make it up to you for taking an unplanned break. Tyler and I are very excited about today's guest, and I think you guys are going to be excited too. I'm really, really thrilled about this one. So we invited another very just amazing Appalachian podcaster on to talk about her show and her her journey, her mission, and talk about my journey some and um, kind of how I ended up being who and where I am and all of that good stuff too. So today's guest is Chelsea, the host of Rednecks Rising. She is absolutely amazing and just a sweetheart just like an angel on earth too but her show rednecks rising is kind of subtitled the secret history of progressive revolution in appalachia it is anti-capitalist it is anti-fascist it is anti-racist and it is so so interesting so whether or not you yourself identify as any of those things, whether you identify yourself as Appalachian, whether you identify yourself as anti-racist, which I hope we all are at this point in time, but, you know, whether you identify as anti-fascist, and that is in the literal most definitive Explanation, definition of the word anti fascist. Again, I hope we all are at this point in time. And whether or not you identify as anti capitalist, I know a lot of people are going to probably be up in arms about that one. But trust me, trust me on this. No matter if you identify with or resonate with any of these ideas, This is an episode I want you to listen to because it is fascinating. Chelsea has so, so many good things to say. So many interesting things to say. And we really, she and I had a great conversation talking to each other about things that I didn't know about and that she didn't know about. And ways of thinking that I didn't know about and that she didn't know about. And that is what I've been thinking is all about. This is an absolutely fantastic episode. I literally, I can't say enough good things about her in this episode. I'm absolutely thrilled with it. And I just, I just want you to listen and I want you to enjoy. And I hope that you enjoy. And I hope that if you do enjoy, you go check her show out too, because it deserves a listen and whether or not, again, Whether or not you identify with her politics or whatever it may be, go listen to her episodes where she talks about the history of Appalachia. Go listen to her episodes where she talks to other Appalachians about things that they're experiencing. I mean, she has good content and it is about the people. It is about our people of Appalachia. So with all that being said... Here's Chelsea. Thanks for having me
0: and for lifting up the show. Um, which, just to lay it out there for folks who aren't familiar, um, Rednecks Rising is a podcast that is dedicated to the anti racist, anti fascist um, values that have been deeply embedded in the Appalachian people in our region throughout history. And um, I take this approach of one, diving deep into history and kind of relaying what I learn about Appalachian history as an Appalachian woman, but also two, interviewing Appalachians um, who live, or who are alive right now, and who are doing work in regards to community organizing, mutual aid, bringing people together, um, even like cultural reconnection, Um, and so, to answer your question i'm like gonna go ahead and give a disclaimer and apologize in advance i have adhd and can totally just get lost in telling a story which is part of what inspired me to um start the podcast but to start at the beginning um it's really hard for me to uh to tell the story of the podcast in a vacuum because it's really deeply connected to my personal story so I grew up in the rural Appalachian Mountains of Western North Carolina, and my mom was 19 when she got pregnant with me, and she's a single mom, and so what that meant was, growing up, I was quite literally being raised by a village of church members, neighbors, extended family who were raising me along with a whole gaggle of little cousins. Um, And I was really fortunate to have this immense sense of belonging and love and like I never feared or wanted for anything and on the other hand I also was poor my whole life and was being raised by a village of people who were all living in poverty although I didn't know that we didn't talk about it but all of the symptoms were a critical part of my development so um domestic violence, substance abuse, addiction, um, overdoses, even houselessness, like seeing my cousins sleep on my mom's couch when I got into older years because they were struggling with their own addiction issues and were homeless at the time. And um, just all of the things that come along with being poor, which is exactly what we were just talking about, like that fear of Uh, trying to survive under capitalism because of all the repercussions if we can't contribute in a way that society deems valuable. Um, And all of the people who were raising me growing up were telling me, oh, you won't have to struggle the way that we've struggled if you go to college. I think that was the millennial. A message we all received. (laughs) It's like, that's your path out is go to college, get that degree. So the local university, Western Carolina University, I went there right out of high school. I didn't know what I was going to study. I was not politically attuned. I literally did not know the difference between Democrats and Republicans even. I did not pay attention in history class in high school. And that year that I started college, one of the men who raised me, my Uncle Randy, who was just the epitome of, like, what comes to mind when you think, like, loving, good old boy, Appalachian, like, Uncle Pawpaw <laughs> type of man. Yeah, like, could pick up any string instrument oh. and play it at a family reunion and always was playing music. Would like, he worked... Hard jobs, construction, working on cars, etc. That I remember, like he had those calloused working man hands, and always came home late for dinner. And he he had my initials and all of my cousins' initials and/or names tattooed on his forearm. Just so loving. And that year, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Mm. This was before the Affordable Care Act had passed, and. I was turning 18, and Obama was getting ready to run for re-election, which would be the first election I could vote in, and because healthcare was the central like, issue for his campaign, um, while I was watching my uncle essentially just face barrier after barrier to accessing the care that he needed to like die with dignity basically like it wasn't yeah. about prolonging his life it was just can we make him comfortable yeah. I was watching that happen while there was this national conversation taking place about health care and I was finding all of that grief uh, that I should have been holding was getting replaced with rage and I started to make all of these connections between the system and everything that I had grown up seeing and feeling because of being a poor Appalachian and a poor Appalachian community. And um, so as a result, that kind of catapulted me into this journey of community organizing, uh, starting with like registering student voters on campus for Obama's campaign, and then going on to work in electoral politics in 2016, which, it's a huge Bernie stand and then
1: River <laughs> like when I was younger I was super super conservative and I have like changed so much just oh as a that's human. so you know, interesting yeah, it's wild it's I was a young Republican like everything <gasps> whoa I, I, I love in, that I interned for Mitch McConnell.
0: What? Yeah. Oh my, like, what a transformation. A
1: transformation. So, when you say like a huge Bernie stand, I never in my life thought that I would be like, look at that cute little Bernie Sanders in his mittens, just being hilarious, just being cute, running for president again. Love it. Here for it. But I never in my life thought that that would happen to me. And like, I just had to tell you that. And then even my boyfriend who is, you know, men typically are a little bit more conservative than women. Um, in my experience, at least, um, he's like, you know, that Bernie, I, I don't mind him. I actually uh, don't yes. mind some of these. that populist
0: messaging <laughs> yes. really hits. Yeah. it
1: hits. <laughs> anyway,
0: <laughs> I love that. No, thank you so much for sharing. Cause like, I'm I'm taking so long to tell the story, but no,
1: you're fine. So
0: I was on the exact opposite. I was like in college Democrats and came up through this big de-establishment dims kind of lens. But then twenty sixteen came around as a huge Bernie stand during the primary. I watched what happened that year, wrote this scathing Facebook post like the dramatic mm-hmm. person that I was. <laughs> I was like, that Democratic Party is a bunch of traitors and blah, 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 they're two sides of the same coin, which they are, spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah. And <laughs> then still somehow, because of all the work that I had done um, in college Democrats, etc., got a call from one of the regional organizing directors on the coordinated campaign, which is a fancy name for the Democratic Party's slate of candidates. So the Hillary campaign. Um, And they wanted me to organize out here in Western North Carolina. And that experience working on Hillary's campaign is really what sent me on a trajectory from being like big D establishment liberal (laughs) to like getting more and more leftist. And the reason being is actually, I think, um, speaks to your story. Probably, I would love to hear what cause your transformation. But essentially on the 2016 campaign, I was quite literally headhunted and hired because I was from this area and they wanted a local organizer. And then when early voting came around, they sent me an hour and a half, two hours away to go knock on doors in the suburbs near the Piedmont area. And when I confronted my ROD, my regional organizing director about it, they said, according to the people at the top who made these decisions, it was not worth their time for us to knock on doors in Western North Carolina. Uh-huh. And so here I was literally being asked to leave behind my community to not even give them a chance. Right. Right. And I just remember thinking like, my people aren't fucking stupid. Like you put that into the universe and I'm sorry if I hope no, I can girl, on go on it. <laughs> okay. Um, but. You put that into the universe, that they aren't worth your time, and they're going to feel that, and they are going to behave accordingly. And then, of course, after the 2016 election, when we knew what was going to happen, happened as a result of that. We see all of these pieces come out from mass media outlets, basically scapegoating rural America Mm -hmm. and Appalachia and saying, like, oh, it's all these poor white folks who are the reason that Trump won and that we are in the situation that we were in, as if there wasn't a coordinated effort to leave those voters behind over decades. And um, from there, so you know that all happened in 2016, and from there I ended up working on these issue-based campaigns and organizations that allowed me to get out of the traditional electoral politics where they hand you a script and they're like, we only care if you talk to this voter and find out if they are going to vote for us. If they're not, leave. If they are, make a plan with them to vote. It's like very straightforward, black and white. And each voter is a number towards winning. They aren't a human being. Right. And I was able to step out of that and actually start um, experimenting with what we call deep canvassing, which is where you, one, try to talk to the people who don't get talked to about things, and then, two, you um so that like you're going to the unreached areas, et cetera. But then two, you're talking to them about the things that they don't normally get talked to about. So we were asking questions like, what are you, what are you losing sleep over? What's keeping you awake at night? What do you actually think is a solution to those things? And we ended up publishing this report called No One's Ever Asked Me Before, because that was what people said first usually in response to wow. our questions. Like they'd be like, Oh, I don't actually I need to think about this because no one's ever asked me before and that like hearing people's stories and being able to spend an hour talking to them on their front porch as opposed to five minutes trying to convince them trying to sell them a platform basically Mm -hmm. that really is what like for me turned my view of. I already had gone like I hadn't gone to school for political science I was already more of like a human oriented person I went to school for social work and etc but that experience hearing the stories really is what made me start to see community organizing less as a political um political thing and more of a one healing thing and two like storytelling opportunity and so that Years and years of organizing, you know this all started back in twenty twelve is when I first got started on campus like years later last year, I finally was like, Appalachia has so many beautiful stories. And we get whitewashed. We get painted as if we're all white, which first of all erases like all of the black and indigenous folks and the queer folks and trans folks get overlooked or erased from the narrative. And mm-hmm. it also erases, all of the good fucking work that is actually happening on the ground in Appalachia to combat the rise of white nationalism in our own communities. And I wanted to have a platform that spoke that truth to the universe and like spoke that truth to power and folks were hungry for it. Like folks have the response from even before the first episode dropped. Like folks were like, Oh, Appalachian folks in particular were so excited to hear their real story as opposed to some story that's being sold for like a narrative or for policy purposes or whatever.
1: Right. I think, I think that's fantastic that you saw that space that needed to be filled, 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 we love it. Lord, that needed to be filled and you stepped into it and you made it your own But you made it our own, like you made it for everyone, not just for your own, for your own narrative or for your own people who look like you or people who talk like you or from exactly where you're from. So I always had a similar passion, but it took me a while to realize, um, and it's kind of, one of the strings that led me to creating I've Been Thinking, um, when I look back and see how everything kind of came together for me to create my podcast, right, um, but I was working so hard in college, like, trying to get people to... See that the stereotypes created by the media of Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia as a whole, because I'm from Eastern Kentucky, Southeastern Kentucky specifically... Um, how harmful it was, how untrue it was. Like I did this presentation in a communications class my freshman year of college about media representation of Eastern Kentucky and how just wildly incorrect it was. Right. But I also, and it was fantastic, but I also had a narrative that I recognize now that I was trying to feed which was like there like there was so much good intention behind what I was doing but I was trying to say it's not as bad as people want you to think it is right Mm. which is true in a way but also completely overlooking the incredible poverty the incredible educational poverty all the things that we miss out on so I'm literally showing them like see, we have like big houses and we have successful businesses and we have these things. It's not all trailer parks and, and, uh, like trash pits And you know, it's, it's not as disgusting and hillbilly in all the negative ways as the media wants you to believe it is, which I, I love that 18 year old me was trying to do that, but I was ignoring all the ways that I could have been helping it in a totally mm. different way, right? Mm. Like, I could have been saying, here's all the things that are right about it, but also acknowledging the things that are wrong instead mm-hmm. of just trying to put flowers over top of the mess that it sometimes <laughs> is. hmm
0: Yeah, and I would even give 18-year-old you a little grace in in the word ignoring because it's more, for me, it's like you just hadn't got, like you were at the first stop in your discovering, right? Like it wasn't ignoring, it was like unraveling and that was the first stop for you unraveling that narrative. It's kind of like learning math, you can't take algebra until you've learned multiplication and um, like this podcast even, you know, like when I started it last year, I wanted to start it mostly about the community organized. I was inspired by the community organizing I had been a part of and had seen happening on the ground, but immediately as upon starting to investigate for the purpose of uh, making the historic episodes, I had to research questions that I had never even thought to ask. Like the question your 18 year old self probably didn't even think to ask is like, why are there Trailer, so many trailer parks why are there so many people and it's like following that thread backwards right and when we start to follow that thread backwards which is what i started to learn through the show it wasn't my intention when i um launched the podcast but it ended up being one of the core pillars of the show is that when we start to follow that thread backwards we really see how the history of appalachia and our people in the communities here all the way back to colonialism and the birth of this state entity that we call the United States of America like when we follow it back it's been a history of purposeful intentional suppression by people in power in order to prevent coming together from or coming together between poor white laborers and poor black and other workers and enslaved folks of color and There's been all these incentives that they've created and the narrative is one of those things, right, because if they can say, look at all of these poor white people, they are racist, they are your enemy, while they're simultaneously telling all of the poor white people to blame all of the poor brown and black people for their economic issues, then like it's been this purposeful intentional strategic campaign, and we can look back and like that's the part that 18 year old you wasn't ready to probably learn about because I know at 18. Part of the reason I was big D Democrat was because that was my entryway, right? But now I see how, like, they're getting, you know, Chuck Schumer's donors are the same donors as Mitch McConnell, right? And, like, they are on the same side. They just make it look different.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're exactly right about that. And I appreciate you giving 18 year old me grace on that because I look back sometimes and I'm like, oh, Lord, Elena. Lord, you had such. Well, just what an
0: awesome journey. I'm so curious how you went from being (laughs) like, and I was evangelical, like Christian at one point, you can blame an ex-boyfriend in high school, but, um, um, (laughs) so I get it. And I was, I had some real problematic takes that I look back and cringe hard on. So, um, no judgment from me
1: ever. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, no, and I don't, um, I try not to judge myself for the most part because it's just, you know, it's just the layers of the little onion that I am. But um, yeah, so I was raised in a a Southern Baptist church um, by fairly conservative parents. Um, And I say fairly conservative because on the grand scale, they are fairly conservative, but for that area, they're relatively progressive in a lot of ways, Um, which is always interesting too, but they always raised me to be very, whether they realized it or not, and whether they would have actively put these words to it or not, they did raise me to be very feminist and very anti-racist.
0: Don't you love that about growing up in Appalachia? (laughs) Like, that was my thing, was like, okay, they keep calling all my people horrible racist, but like, they raised me to be this way like yeah. I am the way I am because of these yeah. radical revolutionary Appalachians I love Literally. that
1: yeah and and you know it's just it's so interesting it's so interesting and it's really funny because my I, I remember a time when a boy at school called me a feminist like as an insult and I asked my dad what it meant and he explained it to me and then I go well then you think I am a feminist? Um, And he was like, let's be careful with using that word, though. Because even though this is the same man who was like, boys suck. Girls can do anything in the whole entire world because I'm an only child. And they taught me that I can kick ass and take names and do whatever the hell I want. He was like, boys suck. You don't need them. You can do anything. Like, do do you? Go dad, go. Yeah, no, they were fantastic, but then when I was like, I think I am a feminist, he was like, let's be careful with that word, because there was so much, especially this was like the early to mid-2000s, there was so much of a, for some reason, negative connotation to it, and still sometimes there is, especially on the more conservative side, so it's just really interesting how those things all played together, but... As I got older, I went to a liberal arts college. I went to Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. So that is, like, a private liberal arts school. And I tried really hard to hang on to conservatism. But one of my friends from home told me, he was like, Elena, like, I understand because I went through this same process. He said, but as you... Leave the echo chamber. He didn't use those words, but like that's what it was. He was like, As you leave the echo chamber and you continue your education, you are going to continue to become more and more liberal. He was like, I'm just going to tell you. And I was like, You're crazy. That's not going to happen to me. And then here it freaking is. um <laughs> But yeah, it was, it was from gaining all of these new experiences and people and and just like all these new things that happened to and around me that never would have happened to me if I had stayed in Barberville and I love Barberville Mm. don't think I don't but if I had stayed on in Barberville on Stinking Creek you know the book um Stinking Creek and it's like the photo but I can't remember the photographer who did it, but it's a very famous book, and it's all of these photos of incredibly impoverished Eastern Kentuckians.
0: Mm. Were they some of the photos that ended up in the Library of Congress?
1: Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. It's literally called Stinking Creek. That's where I'm from. Love that for you. So, like, that's where I grew up, was on the creek and I love it. I love it with my whole entire heart. But if I had stayed there, I never would have come I have become the person I am now, obviously, but like I never would have come to realize how into what degree these systems that are in place keep my fellow creakers down, mm-hmm. you know. And the ways that the things that I thought were the right things to believe and vote for and all of those things were continuing to oppress the people Mm. that I thought I was helping
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and thought I was voting for.
0: Uh, Well, it makes me think of, like, the power of the narrative and even Mm -hmm. how what you were sharing to your class and, like, the focus on, like not acknowledging the parts of our roots that have been associated with that like oppression systemically and politically throughout history. And how, if when we even start to acknowledge that systemic oppression, it becomes so much more clear how our liberation and our suffering is interconnected with the liberation and suffering of our neighbors, of color because like it's another exa- it's not comparable by any means to what black folks indigenous folks etc have gone through but the way that the narrative is whitewashed to say these pieces of your culture your story your history those are bad and we want to erase those right ignore those and either say like if we do claim that that means we are the problem it's not this system right but it's like very akin to the war on poverty and that like trope of the welfare queen right and it's like one of the ways that that narrative was weaponized to like incentivize black folks to assimilate to whiteness in order to like escape that stereotype and in the same way for Appalachians like exactly and then that feeds us into adulthood into voting for policies that help us feel like we are distancing ourselves from that narrative as opposed to transforming the conditions that created that situation in the first place.
1: Right. I think that is a really fantastic point, especially I really love just that intersectional intersectionality that you hit on there about race and labor and I know you did a pretty extended series on that on Rednecks Rising which I think is fantastic and that's something that really gets ignored in my opinion with the greater conversation around Appalachia just the the amount of people of color that have had a part of a, a huge part of our story, but that is not what you think of. You think of this incredibly whitewashed place. And so I, I love that you you really made that a a major topic on Rednecks Rising. And that it's something that you dove into a lot and I love that you brought it up here. So thank you for that. Um but I also really love that idea of not voting against or whatever, but instead transforming Mm -hmm. because that's, that's what you have to do. You can't erase something and build new. I mean, you can, but it's really friggin' hard. So we need to transform.
0: Yes. And I think like, I have so many thoughts right now. Um, Hit me. For one, (laughs) maybe she is going in a million different directions.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) for one just like thanks for uh just your appreciation of the intersectionality and like to be fully transparent you know i'm a white woman and while i went into this podcast wanting to be intentional about um lifting up intersectionality i actually had no plan to do it in the way that that extended like series ended up happening and it truly was like a there was just no way for me What happened was, so episode one goes into the history of the term rednecks, because I, like most people, thought that the history started with the coal miners using the red bandana. I didn't know a lot of the history before that, and I didn't know about the overlaps between basically um, like the coal miners being accused of being Russian Bolsheviks and communists who were like, yeah, trying to convince the worker, like there was this narrative created to undermine the labor movement, right? Saying like, oh, it's a communist agenda. Like they're coming over here from Russia. They're not even from here. Hilarious. And it's so, wild. so the first episode I ended up doing that and there were all of these uh, sort of hints, like open doors that were like, ooh, there's more here to what I ended up calling the race and labor rabbit hole. Um, And I ended up doing, yeah, I can't even remember. I think it was four episodes after that that were called the race and labor rabbit hole and then went into different things and those actually ended up coming out of like all i started wanting to cover the battle of blair mountain which you might have had a different experience growing up in eastern kentucky i'm a little bit farther south than you i literally never fucking learned about the battle of blair mountain growing up in appalachian western north carolina i didn't know it existed
1: that's so interesting to me so I definitely knew about it, did not, I don't think it was, or at least I don't remember it being, like, a thing in school, right? But I did learn about it, because Harlan is literally an hour away, Um, like, from my parents, as the crow flies, much, much closer. I mean, like, you know, but you gotta go around the the mountains and hills a little bit. Um, But... Growing up, I did learn about it, not significantly that I remember. But I did know um, I, I did know that, so my great grandpa, he was a coal miner in Harlan, and my papa Terry was, and his siblings were, at least for part of their life raised like in company housing on the mm. coal mine grounds, you know, all that good stuff. I don't know a ton of details about that, and I wish I could have talked to my papa more about that, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I did know that. I knew that my grandmother on my mom's side, she has a, an ancestor, a family member, something like that. I can't remember, and I need to ask my mom about it. But my mom told me, and this is why I really can't remember all the details, she was like, yeah, he was um, the not-good sheriff in Harlem. Mm. He, was, he was a not-good one. And I was like, oh, shit. And then a really good, really, really good close family friend, his name is Blair, um, because his grandfather was J.H. Blair.
0: Wow.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it's so funny because he is so not that. Wow. So not that. And he is so like for the people, like very very progressive, all these things and or at least in my experience he is in all the ways that I know him he is, you know. And, yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> super Oh my fun, gosh. Right? <laughs>
0: yeah, so many tangled webs. So, tangled Yeah. Webs. Sorry,
1: I did I not learn.
0: No, I love it. It makes me feel a lot less um, <laughs> anxious about my own tangents that I go on. Um, but so I didn't learn about it either. And did because we're farther south and there weren't as many coal mines in the southern most mountains of the Appalachian region, um, it wasn't really something that was like, what do you call it, like urban legend or anything around here that got talked right. about. And... So when I was like, I'm going to do an episode on Blair Mountain. I'm really going to learn. I don't know much about it. I started doing my research and looking into it. And then it was like, I first learned that Blair Mountain was actually like the culmination of a large string of direct actions um, in the labor movement. And then I was like, oh, well, I can't tell the story of Blair Mountain then if I don't tell the story of all of the uprisings that led to it. And then the first i was like well i have to figure out what caused the first uprising if i'm going to tell the story of why those happened and then that took me back to um basically uh the indentured servants era and then i had to keep going back and figure out like okay well why did this first action happen between these indentured servants or whatever coming together and then that literally took me back all the way to the formation of the United States and the uh, like sending over of their ships to colonize this country and the fact that it was quite literally a corporate venture and it was share- corporate shareholders from Europe who were sending poor white folks on their boats to figure out how to make them more money from this investment um, over here on these lands and like. It just ended up being, like, there was no way for me to tell the story, even of that one piece of Appalachian history, the Battle of Blair Mountain. There was literally, at least for me and the way my brain works, because I have to get to the the why of it yeah, all. Yeah, you have
1: to have the context of it.
0: Exactly. And I just couldn't tell the story without get, getting into the intersectionality, without going all the way back to the Virginia slave codes and, like, all of the comings together of the labor working class, right? The proletariat, whatever you wanna call it, we the people who um, were coming together basically against the shareholders, against the masters, against whatever, time and time again, and then in response, the people who were in positions of power oppressing and incentivizing their division and not coming together. Like the slave codes being literally the first time that race was even codified into US law by saying, oh, if you are a white indentured servant and you're caught running away with a black slave or a black indentured servant, you will automatically have a longer sentence, a significantly longer punishment as a result because of the interracial um, dynamics. So it was like literally encoded into our law in order to prevent us from working together. And so it was like, that is the story of, all of us, I think, at the end of the day when we trace it back far enough.
1: That's so fascinating. And I have to go actually, like, spend time and listen to all four of those episodes together. Because a lot of those things, I'll be honest, are things that I don't know very much about. Um, yeah, I didn't. I had, yeah, I had never heard of the Virginia slave Codes, like, until just now. So I think that's fascinating. And it's also interesting to me because I had always been um kind of talked about or taught about it from or some of these same ideas from a different point of view where keeping with my family history in mind, that's like kind of how I was taught some of these ideas. Um so for example, my the Campbells um which is my last name, my direct lineage, were granted land in Eastern Kentucky, where we've been for generations since the Revolutionary Mm. War, because of service in the war. Mm -hmm. And so these were hardworking, but also very, very educated. And from a higher class um, in Scotland and Ireland. And they were given this land for their service for the colonial effort, right? And then they were kind of isolated. And so while my family was still, um, I guess, tended to be a little bit more on the better offside because they continued service with, uh, in the civil war, my family fought for the union, you know, all that good stuff. And they were, they tended to be like higher ranking and all, all of that fantastic stuff. Love that for them. I'm really happy that they had all of those incredible experiences and didn't have it always as hard as other people did. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really showed me Like, keeping all of that in mind, how easy it was for other people to be incredibly isolated and to come from very well-off or very educated or whatever families. And then they get this land in the mountains, and they're like, oh, this is fantastic, we can farm, we can live here, we can do all of this. And then their closest neighbors are 20 miles away, and then next thing you know, you've got a few generations and you don't know how to read anymore. Mm.
0: And that was
1: never something that was, until later on, that was addressed through infrastructure or through people who were grassroots organizing. And then you had the the librarians on horseback and, you know, people volunteering and all that good stuff to, to bring education or to bring whatever back into the area so I that's always a really interesting side of it for me which is not um which is just a different part that I was always learning about like when I was younger
0: yeah I hadn't really thought about that genera because the first thing that popped into mind when you're like oh we got this land I was like oh generational wealth like right but it's like we don't yeah I had never even given any consideration to the like right um impact of isolation as a result of that generational wealth access particularly for folks who settled in Appalachia right
1: and then there's also the fact where so there's there's a large large area in my home county of Knox County that was always owned by the Campbell's right but then few generations down somebody sells off a piece few generations down mm-hmm. another kid sells off a piece and now today it i mean it is a beautiful beautiful area and it was like i always loved when we were driving through to go see my great grandfather and my great uncles and my second and third cousins right and i would always love to imagine what it was like for my ancestors farming that field or living in a house on the side of that hill over there or whatever it is I always loved imagining that and my dad would tell me he's like oh yeah the like this area was owned by this person this 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 he's like but you know along the way so and so had seven kids five of them sold the land and moved elsewhere and then the same thing happened again and again until the point where now my family has our cemetery and then we have a very very small area that really isn't even like it it's owned by my great uncles and my like third cousin that kind of thing. It's it's not uh-huh. even something that is even associated with my immediate family anymore, you know, even though they they feel like it because that's how Appalachian families are, right? Like it doesn't matter if you're third cousins, that's still your cousin. But uh-huh. in the traditional sense of immediate family, where it's like mom, dad, me, has nothing to do with us. Uh-huh. So it's so interesting how that, what what could have been generational wealth, like you said, it was sold off for one reason or another, for one hardship or another, or to trade in that isolation for being able to move elsewhere and have some kind of new start. Like, there's so, so much.
0: yeah. I um, follow this mentor, teacher, coach who I've learned so much about how I talk about and explain these things um, from her. Her name is Desiree B. Stevens and she was the first person who I think I heard describe it as like, um, essentially they s- our ancestors sold off our culture, and our connection to those roots, et cetera, in exchange for whiteness is a lot of times how she explains it and not whiteness in the literal sense of like, they're not bleaching their skin, but like whiteness in the sense of like, oh, we've got to go to the city and be educated and become more white collar, right? Like assimilating into that, what I, in the show, I often call it the culture, like capital T, capital C trademark sign um, of white supremacist capitalism, um, where it's like, you know, race ultimately was introduced, at least in our country, as a tool to maintain that profit structure that had driven the establishment of this state entity in the first place. And so sort of race and gender and all of these things are actually pillars and props that uphold the hierarchy that is ultimately about power and money and goes back to capitalism and it's like whiteness when we say we sold these things for whiteness it's like really it's for that power and that money and the chance of being one of them right like one of the ones with the power and with the money
1: right and the chance of having status versus being just just a, a little scottish irish guy from the hills of eastern kentucky right Exactly, and
0: because even when you were talking about, like, obviously knowing how to read is important, so we don't want to get to a place (laughs) where our generation doesn't know how to read, but, like, even the idea that, like, that lifestyle that was in mutual relationship with the land and practicing that level of, I don't like to call it self-sufficiency because it's not an individual self, it's, like, a community sufficiency. Yeah. Um. Like that was in conflict with the way that society was being structured if you wanted to be successful, right? So intellectual knowledge was more about like being able to conform and assimilate to what would make you successful in society, as opposed to actually benefiting like the collective goodness and contributing to whatever that structure and system was that was creating that like communal um, sustenance. Right. And so. It's like why, like in exchange for learning all of the things that folks ended up going on to school to learn, including how to read, but also like all of the other things, how to be businessmen, how to work in the military, whatever it was, like they lost the knowledge of the farming and the family traditions and all of the wisdom that had gotten them to that point in the first place, you know?
1: Right. No, you're absolutely right. And that reminds me of um, of a quotation. Hold on. It, it was John Adams. He said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, yada, yada. Um, my sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, Etc. 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 To give their children a right to study painting, music, poetry, mm. architecture. Oh, I just got chills. Uh, right, and I know that, as well as I. I know that that is what our ancestors wanted for us, right? And that is. A lot of the time I think why they traded their culture exactly in to be a part of the culture mm-hmm. <laughs> they traded their culture for exactly. the exactly that's it and and I love that they thought for us like that, but when the culture is inherently broken and they had no no way exactly to know that, yeah.
0: They went but, with the path yeah. that looked the most promising for them
1: at right. the time. Just like the people who told us, you have to go to college to get out of here. Exactly. Like, it's the same exact thing. It's the same exact motivation. But it takes sometimes a couple generations or sometimes um, ten years to realize that that actually wasn't the solution after all, mm-hmm. or it wasn't the only solution, or it wasn't the best solution. Mm-hmm.
0: And that the narr- they were given a narrative, right? Like, this goes back, keeps going back to, like, the narrative. And that's part of, I think, why community organizing led me to, the podcast was just, like, one platform for storytelling. But ultimately, when it came to unraveling the history of our region, our country, when it came to changing the hearts and minds of strangers, but they were neighbors I just hadn't met yet, like on the doors as a community organizer, when it comes to the stories that have been, like the media narrative about Appalachia, like everything that I have come to learn is that like, it is in the storytelling. And even as we're, like the storytelling is where the potential is. And even as we're talking about like this our ancestors doing the best that they could with what they had at the time and like the the wisdom and the knowledge that they traded in order to gain what they thought was going to be the wisdom and knowledge that would set them up for generational success and like how storytelling even (laughs) was like how that wisdom was passed on for so long and we traded that art of storytelling which is so deeply embedded in Appalachian culture and also I know many other cultures but we traded that for right facts and figures and this written word that is like contractual right and research evidence-based which is important but like even in community organizing when i got out of like political campaigns and into community-based work i uh, learned and helped contribute to research that showed that when we approach people with facts and figures, we can have a freaking PhD. It doesn't matter. But when we approach them with facts and figures, and we say like, oh, you should support universal health care, because it will decrease the cost of our federal health expenses by x amount, and x number of people will gain coverage, blah, blah, blah. It has virtually no effect on how they perceive the issue or choose to act after that moment but when we have a conversation with someone where we number one allow them to tell their story so we ask them about their own experience with healthcare for example and then number two tell them our own story or a story that within our periphery about the issues my story with healthcare my story about my uncle trying to die with dignity and when we do that, it actually has a significant impact on how they perceive the issue. So literally on a scale of one to 10, like, do I agree or do I not agree with the idea that everyone should have universal health care? like they shift in the moment, but then also it's like a prolonged impact. So it lasts for weeks, if not months, we can't test it forever, because we run out of money. But this idea, and this is something that I think Sorry if I'm on a little bit of a soapbox, but part of what the people in power have done so well (laughs) is made governing such a like facts based, statistical, womp womp thing that like feels so disconnected from the human experience. And, you know, largely we've all lost faith in politics because. (laughs) Why would we have faith in politics? But also we've lost faith in politics because it's like, it doesn't even feel human and it doesn't recognize our humanity. There is no story in, like that's why we didn't know our history, right? Like, because we weren't told the stories. And when we really tell the stories, that's when, you know, you are like, oh, I've got it now, I've got to go look up the Virginia slave codes. There's a whole story there. And within that story is all this hidden information. And governing people dictating how people interact and coexist is about co-creating stories right it is not about like laying lines on a paper we are not black and white we are human beings and um, sorry so I don't remember why I started that originally but just like this idea of the narrative that they purposefully create and try to and they did it with our ancestors. I think that's what inspired me was like they I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry, because I think you were saying some really awesome some really awesome things. You were making some really incredible points that really circle us back through the entirety of this episode that there is this narrative of Appalachia as a whole that is so dismissive of its truth and people have always wanted to represent us as numbers or as something less than human in one way or another yes and it ignore it obviously ignores our humanity but it ignores our our ability as Appalachians to contribute to our communities to the greater narrative on on a national level on a global level like it's always such a such a moment when somebody says oh you know George Clooney's from Kentucky and it's like mm-hmm. oh hol- he is holy mm-hmm. crap like why is that so shocking you know mm-hmm. or or Oh, this this UN ambassador is from the mountains of North Carolina. Why is that surprising to you? hmm Because you know that that shouldn't happen based on your understanding of Appalachia. Because you know that that shouldn't happen based on the fact that we were turned into a food desert, an educational desert, Uh, Like, we Mm -hmm. were not given infrastructure. We were not given the infrastructure to survive where I live. We weren't given the infrastructure to survive not being coal-based or Mm -hmm. not being manufacturing-based or not being lumber-based.
0: And all of the coal that was being made here was literally keeping the lights on for all of the lifestyles of all the people who now look down on this region.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think, I think everything you've said has just really, it's just really pulled it together. And I hope that people have enjoyed this conversation truly because I have, I know I've loved this.
0: (laughs) Good. I am always up for an excuse to get on a soapbox and talking with you. I really just appreciate how we have So much in common, but also are like two sides of the coin in the ways that we come to this work and this perspective. And so grateful for your story and the journey that you're on.
1: Uh, Chelsea, I'm grateful for you, your story, the stories that you're telling, the way you're representing our home in like so many different senses of the word representing I just think, I think you're doing amazing things. And I really, really appreciate you being here. Can you tell us, like, tell us where to find Rednecks Rising? Tell us, like, if you have anything else you want to plug. If you have any recommendations for the listener, like, hit us.
0: Ah, uh, Thank you. Yes. So, and thank you so much for having me on. Um, Obviously. We have a link tree, which in the link tree, you can find all of the streaming platforms that you can access the podcast on as well as like all of our socials and so that's link tree rednecks rising and it's plural a lot of folks um miss that but going back to what something you said earlier this has always been a wee thing and not a me thing um and so from the very beginning it's always been rednecks rising because i wanted to be able to tell our story and not just um my story because my story is part of something bigger so anyways link tree Rednecks Rising, and the show has been, I am a working class mom of a three-year-old. So the show has been inconsistently putting out episodes this year, unfortunately, but um, I am really excited. I just had a conversation with a couple of folks, including one who has been on my show before, who I think are gonna be joining as co-hosts. And so um, I hope folks keep an eye out for that because I'm really excited about it. And if anyone is listening to this and, you wanna tell your story as an Appalachian or wanna talk about something that you are passionate about in regards to working class southern rural Appalachian shenanigans, um, hit me up. Rednextrising at
1: gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Chelsea. Any other like anything you want to recommend to the listener like anything that had you it's okay if you don't have anything off the top of your head but just like any resources anything at all that you might want to recommend
0: oh my gosh um i'm like there's so many where do i start um i think you know so on my link tree actually i have a a link to something that says um you might have to go to chelsea's like, per, there might be two links. You have to go to Chelsea's personal and then to the link that should be in all caps. And it says movement resources library. And it's basically a Google Drive folder <laughs> that I have created um, and made publicly visible that's got a ton of folders for organizing based stuff. So Amazing. it's like if you want to learn more about canvassing or digital stuff or direct actions, like everything's got a folder. And anytime I'm in a training, I low key just snag and um, we'll say, Uh, redistribute (laughs) the uh, wealth of knowledge that and resources that I gain um and then I would just say for like Appalachian history and content um my show obviously Obviously. um but I think what's left of the south is not Appalachian specific but they do a lot of good work in combating um uh mis- misinformation about the south and our history and also they have so many great guests on who go into deep dives on some of the um things that we've talked about virginia slave codes other aspects of history
1: yeah very very cool and on the rednecks rising instagram page you have a ton of resources linked there as well i've noticed like in your story highlights you've got like a different highlight for pretty much every Appalachian state. And it's got all kinds of different stuff in those. So I would recommend that to the listener as well. When you're checking out Rednecks Rising and all of Chelsea's hard work, like don't ignore her Instagram story highlights because there's good stuff in there.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I try to just reshare any organizational um, calls to actions, etc., from the good folks across the region. And then keep them like organized as such so if you're an Ohioan you would be able to go to the Ohio highlight and see the posts from like the Ohio abortion rights uh, folks for example
1: amazing we love it Thank you so, so much, Chelsea, for being here. I appreciate you more than you know. um, And I am really excited to hopefully have some more conversations with you in the future.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. Have me back anytime.
1: Yay. Y'all, I hope you loved this episode. I did. I really, really loved creating this for you. I really loved... Being able to do this with Chelsea, Tyler loved this episode as he was editing and doing all the post-production. Like, it's such a good one. I'm really, really thrilled with it, and I hope that you enjoyed it as well. Now, just a reminder, check out Chelsea. She plugged herself in the episode, but I'm gonna do it again. Rednecks Rising, wherever you get your podcasts, and check out her Instagram she's got amazing resources all over the place there for pretty much everywhere throughout Appalachia you can find a story highlight for specific resources to your area which I just think is absolutely visionary like so good I love organization um While you're at it, make sure that you're following us on Instagram at I've Been Thinking Pod. Check out the website for today's episode post, www.ivebenthinkingpod.com, and make sure that you check out our Patreon. Tyler and I are working on getting consistent again with extra episodes over there, and we're really loving that. We're really having a good time. It's goofy. It is fun. It's informative. There's extra and exclusive content there. And we really, really would appreciate the little bit of monetary support that comes from that too. Because that is really going to help us keep doing the show. And keep doing it to the level that we want and that we believe you deserve as a listener. So we'd appreciate it so much if you have the ability to... To go check out our Patreon and join there and be a supporter of the show in that way. But if you can't, word of mouth, tell your friends about us, tell your friends to listen, share us on your social media, share your favorite episode, tell others to go listen. Tell one person today to go listen to an episode of I've Been Thinking, and that would just make my day because that's how we're gonna grow and that's how. We're going to be able to do more episodes, keep that high quality, and keep thinking. All right, guys. Thank you so, so much for everything. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk at you next week. This episode of I've Been Thinking was hosted by me, Elena Grace Campbell. It was produced and edited by Tyler Miller. And we are proudly presented by Stove Like Media.